truth that God has across human history chosen to reveal himself. And that revelation is the answer to the question, how can God be known? Or how is God to be known? And the answer is by his revelation of himself. That we can't figure him out, we can't discover him, that there's no way to build the bridge from this side of the chasm to that side of the chasm. That for God to be known and for us to be reconciled to him, he must reveal himself to us. He has to build the bridge this way. And so we looked last time at the doctrine of of just general revelation, how God reveals himself in all that he has made and just kept looking downward and downward to the final thing we talked about, and that is the special revelation of God, and in particular, the special revelation of of Scripture, which, as Peter said, as we read last week, the prophetic word more fully confirmed. That that's what we have when we open this word, when we read it together, is we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. The written word of God. And so today, or in this lesson, what we're going to do is discuss the means by which God has delivered this prophetic word made more sure. So if this is indeed, okay, the word of God, how did that happen? How was God actually able to deliver his word to us written down? And then related to that, we're going to talk about then the authority of Scripture, and we're going to see how those two ideas are very closely linked, the inspiration of Scripture and the authority of Scripture. Because if the Word of God is not, in fact, inspired by God, then it's really no longer the Word of God. And then what authority does it really have over life, godliness, much of anything? But if the Word of God is, in fact, inspired by God and thereby making it the Word of God, then we have to say, okay, it has all authority. And so this idea of inspiration is directly connected to authority. This is the Delray Baptist Church Statement of Faith. And this is just a paragraph that is written on it. where It says, we believe, and that's all of us, right? We all believe, if we're members of Delray Baptist Church, That the Holy Bible, both Old and New Testaments, those 66 books, was authored by God and through divine inspiration written down by men. We affirm that the Bible is totally sufficient and trustworthy, completely free from error. And what we refer to there is the the original Hebrew and Greek texts. You know, of course, we, ha- we have our Bibles in English, which required translation. Someone had, over years, just many, many scores, dozens and dozens, hundreds of, hundreds of faithful you know, followers of Jesus Christ took Hebrew manuscripts, Hebrew documents, and translated them into English. What a gift. And Greek New Testament translated into English, and parts Aramaic translated it. And so what we have is a really good, sound, strong translation. But we wouldn't say, okay, it's this English word is the word that God used. He, he used a Hebrew word or a Greek word. And it's those texts that we're going to say, okay, those are without error. That what was breathed out, what was given there, is in fact what God said. And reveals the principles by which God will judge us. It includes within it the only way of salvation and has as its ultimate fulfillment Jesus the Christ. The Bible will remain to the end of the world the supreme standard and final authority by which all matters of life and doctrine should be tested. And so there you see the connection, even in our statement of faith, between, okay, this is inspired by God, this is without error, and therefore it is the supreme standard and final authority by which everything else is tested. Because when you think about the weight of a person's words, when somebody speaks, we all attribute sort of a certain degree of weight to their words. And what do we usually base that on? Certainly our own perspective, but how do we judge the weight of their words? Their character, expertise, their authority. And so certainly a toddler or a child 
can speak, rant, say things very strongly, but then we're going to take their word as authoritative based on the person. But if a king says it, or if a president says it, right or wrong in this world, how seriously do we take it? We're going to take it more seriously. That, that their word will have as much authority as the dominion they're given. And so we can't even separate the authority of Scripture from the authority of the person who spoke it, who gave it. Another reason why inspiration is important. And so Scripture, as the very words of God, holds more authority in it than a thousand kings and all their words because he's the one who created kings. He's the one who established their thrones. He's the one who raises them up and sets them down. So if we're going to walk into the room of a king and their word has weight and authority in life, well, then how much more God who, who establishes kings, who has outlasted kings, that when he speaks, there's going to be authority, that God said, let there be light, and there was light. You know, when Jesus was entering into Jerusalem and they're all crying out, or, or different people were confessing, even throughout his ministry, who, who this person was, and people would say, okay, tell them to shut up. <laughs> tell them to not be saying what they're saying about you. What would Jesus say to them? Even if I were to tell them to shut up, what would happen? The rocks would even the rocks would cry out. Why? Because the rocks know though they're not conscious moral agents. When Jesus says to the storm, hush, be still, what does the storm do? It's still, why? You know, that's why you know, that, that hymn, Be Still My Soul, has that line in it, the winds and waves still know whose voice shall rule them while he dwells below. It's just this idea that, okay, creation recognizes the voice of God, the words of God. And when he says it, creation does it. There's a centurion, this is in Matthew 8, who believed that that very kind of power and authority belonged to Jesus Christ. Remember, he had come because he had a servant who was sick, even about to die, and he wanted Jesus to heal him. And Jesus was going to come with him, but then what did the centurion say? Yeah, you don't have to come. Just say it. And here's what he said. He says, For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. To my servant, do this, and he does it. What's his point about Jesus? If you say it, it's going to happen. Because you have authority. Everything's under you. That if you say from here that my servant is to be healed... However that works, he'll be healed. And it said Jesus marveled at his faith. It's verse 10. That's often when you see Jesus marvel in the Bible, is at faith. You, know, you don't see him marvel that much at sin. He's not shocked or surprised. He often marvels, though, at, at this kind of faith, a faith that recognizes you don't need to be there. You don't need to touch anybody. You just have to say it. 1 Timothy 6, you may have that passage in front of you. Brian, would you mind reading that? 1 Timothy 6, 13 through 16. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Amen. So Paul's going to charge Timothy to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. And why? What's going to be his reason for that? Keep it free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, and then what does he say next? Yeah. And the reason is, okay, he, because he is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in 
unapproachable light. So the basis for Paul's charge, don't keep this word unstained and above reproach. In other words, teach it well, live it well. Preach it truthfully, live it truthfully. Because the one who has given it, who's coming, and he will come back, he said, is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light. So the reason we, we teach the word and preach the word and by God's grace live the word is not, again, just to make our lives neat and tidy. We don't feel like God's just sort of given us a cool trick in the Bible, a way for us to sort of beat life. But in one way, because the words themselves are given from the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so this is why we're going to address these two doctrines together, that biblical inspiration and biblical authority, that these two things go together. So the inspiration of Scripture, that'll be our first main point. In English translations of the Bible, at least the phrase God said actually occurs around 500 times. Around 500 times do we get the phrase God said in the Scripture. When God sent Moses to Pharaoh on six different occasions, he was told to use the words, thus says the Lord. That's just... God through Moses to Pharaoh. Who's doing the speaking to Pharaoh? Moses is speaking, but whose word is he speaking? Yeah, that's why he's going to say, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, that same phrase appears over 30 times in the book of Isaiah alone. 30 times in Isaiah. Thus says the Lord. Another dozen times he's going to say, hear the word of the Lord. Isaiah will say that. Hear the word of the Lord. And that exact phrase appears around 25 times in Jeremiah, where Jeremiah is going to say, hear the word of the Lord. And so the prophetic writings sort of talk that way. This is how the prophets came, is that when they're speaking, what are they aware of? They're speaking for God. Hear the word of the Lord. Not hear an idea that I got from God, or hear a concept, or hear just a piece of truth I figured out that God helped me see. They're actually saying this is a message from the Lord. Even when Paul, I think, in his greetings, in his epistles, he's going to say things like, grace and peace to you from what? From who? From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Things like that. I think in the one hand, he's not just greeting them personally and then just tacking on this name, I think he's identifying himself, okay, I am an apostle, a sent one from Jesus Christ, and I'm greeting you in this person's name. Why? Because I'm actually speaking in this person's name as well. So I'm bringing you greetings from this king. I'm bringing you greetings from this person. And so there's also New Testament ways that this would have been said that thus says the Lord, or hear the word of the Lord. And so all of those phrases or ideas point to this idea of inspiration. And so what do we mean by it? What do we mean by inspiration? Let's start, let me talk first about what we don't mean. What we don't mean by inspiration is artistic, emotional inspiration. That's not what we mean by it. Because often when we say, okay, an art, artist goes to the hill country and is inspired, what are we saying? They sort of go, they sit, they take out the easel, they look at these vineyards and mountains and hills, and they're inspired to do what? They're, they're sort of moved emotionally, moved artistically to paint or draw something from the creation that they see. We're also not saying, okay, it's cre- creative intellectual inspiration, uh, the way a chef sort of goes to Peru and is inspired by the cuisine where a chef goes there, is inspired by the flavors, and so goes home and does what? Doesn't do the exact thing, but sort of tries to reproduce it. Tries to add some of those flavors and touches to their take on food. That's also not what we're talking about. We're also not talking about sort of a physical, motivational inspiration. 
the way a personal trainer inspires you in the gym or tries? What are they trying to do as you're, as you're lifting whatever you're lifting? What are they saying to you? You can do it. You're screaming. But don't quit. Tell them. And something about the screaming, yeah, one more. It's, isn't that amazing how far one more will get you, you know? And I've, I learned the hard way that if you actually do that one more, there's another one after that. And so the best response is just to not do it, you know? It's the best way to not keep going. Is, as you can see, that didn't work for me. But, but that's a kind of physical motivational inspiration where part fear of the person... But then also something about someone screaming those words to you can actually drive you motivationally to go further. You think any of you who have been through the military or, or boot camp or that those who are training you are trying to push you to what limit? Your breaking point. Your breaking point. And then what do they do? <laughs> A little further. You know? And part of the genius of it is how do we push you to the limit and then a little further? And then tomorrow what's going to happen? push you to that limit, but a little further. Well, that's a, kind of motiv- that's a kind of inspiration, but that's not at all what we're talking about. That when we talk about the divine inspiration of Scripture, we're talking about a very sort of unique thing, which is why words often fail us when we talk about God, is we're trying to find what are the best words in English to sort of capture and describe what's happening when God is delivering his word to us. And so we come up with words like inspiration, but then we have to define it in a way that's really careful because we don't mean God's just charging up some authors and getting them riled up and excited about writing some words down. We don't mean he's just sort of giving them a sense of creativity with words. We don't mean he's just sort of giving them sort of an artistic or creative inspiration where they're they're gonna kind of take some of God's ideas and blend it with their own. This is 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. Garrett, will you read that? Do you have that on the sheet in front of you? Or your Bible? 2 Peter 1. Yeah, 19 through 21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a, a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, so that phrase there, carried along by the Holy Spirit, that's one you can just underline. Is That's sort of a key, what is inspiration phrase. These authors of Scripture carried along by the Holy Spirit, which means the Bible wasn't written by what some have called mechanical dictation, where they're just sort of like robots that just God has sort of programmed and then just to give output of words. That's why when we read Paul's letters, we get a sense of Paul in them. When we read Peter's letters, we get a sense of Peter. When we read Isaiah or Moses, we go, okay, there's something different in these, these, these writings. And some of that is because it's not mechanical dictation. It's God using the personhood of this author but carrying them along by the Holy Spirit, guiding them and controlling them by the Holy Spirit, which I think is a greater testimony to the power of God, the mechanical dictation, that he can actually preserve some of the personality of this author and say exactly what he wants in a way that Paul would say it, but yet only as God would say it through the way that Paul would say it. And so this idea of, okay, carried along by the Holy Spirit... And I, 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 we didn't get to it last week, but it's even a great little statement here on Revelation from Peter where he says, as a lamp shining in a dark place. That's what we're given in this prophetic word, more sure. It's like a bunch of people just sort of huddled in the darkness with this lamp. that were just sort of walking together through, trying to call as many people out of the darkness as possible to this light to follow this path that, that is lit by this lamp until what day comes? Till his appearing. Because when Jesus shows up, now what? There's still a light. This lamp's still on. But it's like, it, how is it going to be distinguished? 
from everything else now that has been illumined by this one who, who shows up. So the word of God is still going to be true, still going to be mighty and great. But again, we're going to see in full the word of God who's going to illumine everything. So again, it shows another reason why when we depart from this word, it's like in the darkness, sort of wandering off the path and away from the light into the wilderness. And you're just doing that with what presumption? That we'll, we know best, that we can make it back, that we won't get disoriented. And again, if you don't have light, just how oriented are you? If you've ever been in like your own house even, that you hopefully know well, and you're walking in the dark, and, you're looking, and, and you think you're one place, when really you're another. And usually when do you find that out, that you're not where you thought you were? When you hit a wall, when you run into a table, when you realize, oh, I, I thought I was over here. That's in your own house. You've only traveled 10 feet. Now imagine, okay, the world in which we live and just leaving the lamp and just sort of being guided by whatever we think our orientation, whatever our version of the truth may be. So here God has given us in his care and in his mercy a prophetic word more sure until that day comes, and it's given to us by those who are carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so we believe in what some have called the verbal plenary inspiration of the Scripture. There's a mouthful. Verbal plenary inspiration. The word verbal is there because it doesn't mean conceptual or just ideally, or it's not just sort of you know, in general, God has sort of given us an idea. So conceptual would maybe be over and against this idea of verbal. So that when we say verbal, what's, what's being conveyed? The actual words. These exact words in these sentences that have been put together in these paragraphs. But we also say plenary, which whenever you go to a conference and you go to a plenary session, why is it called a plenary session? Well, it, so some have used it to mean sort of planning before, but, but who all's in that session from the conference? The main speaker, but then who's attending? Everyone. So plenary means entire in that sense, in that use of it, complete. So when you go to a plenary session, you're going to the session that every attender at the conference is supposed to be in that session. And so when we say verbal, okay, plenary, we mean complete. We mean God didn't inspire every other paragraph or didn't inspire this book but not this book or this idea but that, not that idea. And that's really important today because there's, and in every day because there's lots who would say, well, some of it is inspired. There's a part of it that speaks. But there's other parts, and, and of course we get to decide which parts aren't inspired, right? And usually which parts are those? The ones we don't like. The ones that are most offensive. So, yes, the moral sort of teachings about loving your neighbor, about giving to the poor, that's inspired. But Jesus raising from the dead, well, that's not God's word. And, and what's the argument for why it can't be God's word? Because guys don't raise from the dead. So, therefore, since we know people don't raise from the dead, and it's saying here he rose from the dead, therefore it can't be true. So that's one way to think about plenary is that every word, every sentence put together in each paragraph within the whole Bible is the inspired word of God. And that's why the the early leaders of the church had a task in front of them. And that was to identify which books are actually in the canon of Scripture and which books aren't. So you have books like the Apocrypha that come centuries and centuries and centuries later And really, they're only going to be accepted by the Catholic Church as Scripture around all this debate and discussion about justification (laughs) around the Reformation. And so there's a reason, there's actually a strategic specific reason that certain people wanted the Apocrypha and books of the Apocrypha in. Because there are parts of those books that taught salvation by works, by, by sort of faith and works. So that's why we don't see those books being accepted until there was a really strong, compelling, sort of argumentative reason why. But yet from the earliest centuries, it was really clear to people, here's what is inspired scripture. There was just fingerprints on it. There was signs and cues that we won't go into today 
that the leaders could identify that scripture. Sometimes it was, okay, this book refers to this book as scripture. And this author of scripture refers to this writing over here as scripture. There are lots of other things that, that we won't get into. But, but verbal plenary inspiration. Yeah. So we want to be clear that there wasn't some group of people who just got together and said, we're going to pick which books are in, which books are out. That's, that's yeah. not how it, how it works. But rather the Holy Spirit who gave the scriptures is the same Holy Spirit who indwells the church. And the church, just you know when you hear the voice of the shepherd. Jesus said, you'll hear my voice. Mm-hmm. So over time, the, the, wor- the word that was truly the Lord's is what was preserved because the church knew that was God's word. Mm-hmm. So if somebody comes in and says, okay, I'm going to burn Romans or 2 Maccabees. You say, take 2 Maccabees. You're going to take my head before you take Romans mm-hmm. because we know it's God's word. So there's not some council of people who sit together and say, we like these books versus these books. The spirit who gave the word is the same spirit who's in the church, and the church recognizes the voice of the shepherd through the scriptures. And that's how we know that it's, it's what's true and what's not. Yeah, so. that's good. And, I was, and, and you would see that through the storyline of scripture, where those who were speaking God's word knew what they were saying. Those who were hearing the word recognized, yeah, this is the word of the Lord. And so the idea that that would continue on through every century of the church. That's good. Thank you. 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17. Eric, you want to read that? Verse 4. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So there's another key phrase, that phrase of breathed out by God. And understanding sort of the nature and process of inspiration, that the minds and the wills and the emotions and bodies of the human authors were fully engaged in the writing. And yet, at the same time, God is breathing out his word through that writing. The hands were human hands, but the words were divine words. The speech was sort of human speech, but the author was God. And so biblical inspiration, therefore, is God's act of breathing his words through distinct human authors carried along by the Holy Spirit, such that every word, sentence, and paragraph produced are of his authorship. So one way to define, so biblical inspiration is God's act of breathing his words through distinct human authors carried along by the Holy Spirit, such that every word and every sentence and every paragraph produced are God's word. Yeah, that biblical inspiration is God's act of breathing his words through distinct human authors carried along by the Holy Spirit such that every word, sentence, and paragraph produced are of his authorship. Therefore, God's word. This is important because without it, this book would be a merely human book. And do we have books in the world that are religious books but not inspired books? Yes. And so if this was not the inspired word of God, it would be a merely human book. And I would even say it wouldn't even be the same book. If this wasn't inspired, these aren't the words we would have gotten. Because when human beings write down religious books and religious books about God, is this really how it's put? Is this how people are usually portrayed or how God is portrayed or how events are portrayed? So again, back to Garrett's point that when there's something about the Redeemer, that when we read the Word of God, we go, okay, there's no book like this. There's nothing that says it this way. There's nothing that shows human history unfolding in this light and that even has, as we just read, sort of profitability for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that can bring the kind of conviction that it brings. Like it's interesting, even in times where I've read the Quran or, or different religious books that are put out under Buddhism, you sort of, number one, I feel confused. I'm not always sure what everything means, but rarely do I feel convicted. <laughs> like, wow, I am a sinner. <laughs> That, that has to reckon with a God who is holy. And that it's not about me going out and doing some feat or work to win over some favor, but, but it's much more personal than that. Like, he has a problem with me. 
that requires some kind of payment and reconciliation and not just me making up something. That it's, so number one, there's real conviction that comes, but also there's something really personal that you really go, okay, this is actually a real living, breathing sort of person that is speaking to me, someone that I have to reckon with and deal with. So we could go on for the rest of the morning just talking about all the ways that the scripture is unique, but certainly inspiration is, is important because through inspiration we actually get a divine word and a word from God. You know, Ephesians 6, where the word of God identifies itself as, as, as the sword of the Spirit. That's what Paul calls it. And there's sort of two, I think, images there. One is the word of God is something the Spirit has breathed and given as a sort of weapon in our arsenal to be used, to be memorized, to be believed, to be followed and thought about, and a kind of weapon for defense, as well as a weapon for, in Paul's words, to take down strongholds. So by proclaiming the word, by remembering the word, we both sort of bring the gospel to the world, but we also are defended from whatever assaults of the enemy in the world. That's, that's one way to think about the sword of the Spirit. A second is to think, okay, it's actually the Spirit's sword. It's what we read and take in that the Spirit uses to wage warfare, both in our hearts and lives, but also in others, which is sort of a literally two sides of the sword. But the sword that God gives to us to be used, but also the sword the Spirit uses so that I, we can believe, okay, when we read this, it isn't just that we're taking it and then just using it the way we want to make stuff happen, but that as we read it and believe it, the Spirit actually uses it in our hearts to produce change. The Spirit uses it in our hearts to produce comfort. The Spirit uses it in our hearts to produce faith. And so it's important. Which brings us to the authority of Scripture. This is the second point you have there, the authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture comes from God. That's important. We'll talk about why it's important here in a little bit. Here's how the London Confession puts it. The authority of Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed, depends not on the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, its author, who is truth itself. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. Another way to say that, too, is just that it's either God's word or it's the worst book ever written. It's, you know, it's kind of that idea of, you know, Lewis used to say that Christ, okay, he's either a liar or he's a lunatic or he's a Lord. You know how Lewis had that? Because the way Jesus, he claimed to be God, so you can't just say he's a great guy. You can't just say he's a neat prophet. Because he's either lying or he's crazy. Or he's who he says he is. But he doesn't really leave a whole lot of room to take other views. And sort of the word of God is the same way. Okay, this is either the word of God or it's the most deceptive, dishonest book that's ever been put on paper. Because everywhere in the word of God, there is the claim that the author is God. You know, as we said earlier, God said, I mean, 500 times, thus says the Lord, hear the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said, phrases like that everywhere, where there's only two conclusions we can come to, which are what? Yeah, either it's true or it isn't true. Either this is a book that really is to be received as the word of God with all that authority, or it really is to be burned as the worst form of religious heresy and deception ever put down on paper. But what you can't come up with is it's just a nice book of moral teaching or ideas. So the source of the Bible's authority is God, which is the source of every kind of authority. This is Romans 13.1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So I love that. There is no authority except from God. And even those human authorities in the world have been put there by God. This is how Jude closed his epistle. To the only God, our Savior, 
through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Don't you love that? So all authority, all dominion, all power before all time and now and forever. Which means, okay, when he speaks, he speaks as the one who has had dominion and authority and power forever and will have it forever. Even Jesus said things like this, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God. There's back to Garrett's point. That my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Which Jesus, it means he's, he's saying what there? Whose authority is he speaking on? The Father's. That's something that even Jesus is going to come. He's going to say, the authority I have, I've received from the Father. What I speak aren't my words. They're, they're his words that he would have me speak. He says in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So when he sends them out into the world, go therefore and make disciples, he's going to begin by saying, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Well, from who? From the Father. So even Jesus recognized, okay, I'm, I'm receiving this authority. So he has authority from the Father. And so when we talk about the authority of Scripture, we're talking about the authority God vests in and exercises through his written word. We're talking about the authority God vests in and exercises through his written word. And we'll, we'll talk more in a little while why that's important. One reason it's important is to, for us to remember that is what I'm not saying is that the Bible doesn't have authority. What I'm saying is that the Bible doesn't have authority apart from God's authority, which means I can't just take this and use it however I please as a weapon to get things done. Because somehow this is a magic spell book that if I just say the words right, things have to happen a certain way. Does that make sense, that difference? But rather that this is an extension of the, the very authority and the Word of God that he vests in it. Which brings us to this idea of, okay, the meaning of the Bible's authority and to realize that the, the Bible's authority can't be separated from the source, that authority. Scripture bears authority because the authority of Scripture, because the author of Scripture, is himself the source of truth, is himself the source of power, okay, is himself the source of salvation, is himself the source of all spiritual growth and sanctification, is himself sort of the one who determines, here's what worship is. And so we'll take some of these one at a time. So the meaning of the Bible's authority is that it is authority of truth. Jesus said this in John 17, 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So he's saying that to the Father. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's why when we say in the statement of faith that Scripture is the supreme standard an absolute rule by which all other claims to truth are judged and measured, this is what we mean. That if a claim is made that does not actually fit with the Scripture, but rather contradicts it, then what are we to go with? The Scripture. That, that this is sort of the, the authority over truth, because this is the truth. And so Jesus understood the word of his Father to be truth. And he didn't mean sort of close to truth. And he didn't mean a truth. The actual language he uses there is the truth. Your word is truth. Put down. But then also power. It is the authority of power. Chris Dish, will you read that Isaiah 55, uh, 10 and 11? Should be on the sheet, I think. Is it on the sheet? No? So yeah, if you would... 55... 10 through 11. Yeah, we can turn there even. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring 
forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Yeah, great statement. of just says the rain goes forth and waters the earth, and it doesn't rain and everything stay dry, right? It doesn't rain and, and that doesn't affect, have an effect on the creation on the ground. So it's just using that as an image. As the rain goes down and makes stuff wet, and as things get wet with rain, it grows in the soil. He says in an even greater fashion, so when my word goes forth, it will accomplish the purpose for which I sent it. It will not return to me empty or void. Um, there's just things that we never hear God say, like, that didn't work, or I'll try again. That's why when he repeats himself, it's to make it clear to us. It's not because things don't work when he says it the first time. I said this last week that every day we're all confronted with the truth of how little our word actually accomplishes. <laughs> Right? In our homes, if you have kids, you see it all the time. How often do your words come back void? <laughs> you know, it's, it's one of those constant reminders that I'm not God. Is my word goes out and it comes back to me empty. There, it doesn't bring about the response for which I sent it. God, however, I mean, he puts out his word and it never returns void. It always accomplishes the purpose for which he sent it. But what that also means is it's attached to his purposes. It shall accomplish his purposes. That the scripture is not sort of a written down book of spells. So it's not like Harry Potter. <laughs> where, you know, when, you, when they open up those books in Harry Potter and start reading from them, what happens? When they start saying spells. Magical stuff happens. Why? Because there's something about the arrangement of the words and the power sort of of the one speaking it in that moment, the one recanting it, that makes stuff happen. And that's not what happens here, which is why I really don't just get to name it and claim it. I don't just get to sort of speak it and then reap it, where my word doesn't, 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 it doesn't work that way, where I just get to sort of, t and we'll often use the Bible that way, right? Is we will, we will use it for the purpose for which we sent it. Like, so now, if things aren't going my way in life, or maybe I'm anxious, or just discouraged, or frustrated with people around me, or even trying just to get my kids under control, or people in the church, or whatever else, we can use the Bible as a weapon. We can sort of try to use it and send it out sort of for the purpose for which we sent it. And what we find is, number one, we turn the Bible into something it isn't. Number two, we'll actually grow very frustrated with God. It will actually, our faith will actually weaken because what do you think you'll find if, if I'm feeling anxious and I go and just sort of read a passage with the expectation that, that that'll make me not anxious right away? What might happen next? I might still be anxious. Now what do I think about God and His Word? Yeah, so we'll start saying things like it doesn't work. You know, that, that yeah, I, I was sort of depressed or discouraged. I went and I read this. And I expected that that would make it better. But then I'm not better. Or I thought that I would read this or use this in this relationship and it would bring about this and then it didn't. Then we'll, we begin to go, okay, it isn't working. Well, usually when we're saying that, how are we actually using his word? For just our immediate sort of tool and to arrange the pieces the way we want. And that doesn't mean there aren't times where we read a passage of Scripture and God gives immediate sort of relief. It doesn't mean there aren't moments where we actually speak the word in a relationship and real reconciliation happens right there. Or, things really, or, or we share the word of God with our kids and they actually obey and receive it and believe it. <laughs> where we don't see at times real fruit right away. That is true. But is that just a promise that every time you say it, it will bring about the purpose for which you sent it. Or do we always have to come back to this idea of, Lord, not my will be done, but your will be done. Like, here's, here's the word I'm, I'm going to believe, but, Lord, bring it about in your time and in your way. And so there has to be recognized that as we receive the word and believe the word and speak the word and minister the word, 
it's always sort of submitted to the God whose word it is and the purposes for which he sent it that may not be I get immediate relief. It may not be that this thing goes right, right away. It may not be that it, I see the evidence and the fruit in the time that I want it to be there. That in no way does that mean, okay, the word of God isn't mighty or powerful or true. But rather, like Jesus, we say, but not my will be done. Your will be done. And so anytime sort of we bring the word of God and seek to apply it, use it, um, meditate on it, we also have to have in the back of our minds, okay, is this how the word of God was sent to function in my life? Is this what he means by the purpose for which he sent it? Because this is where a a church can go wrong. And over the year, churches have gone really wrong. Is when the Bible in the hands of leaders does become a weapon. It becomes a means of control. It becomes a means of subduing people. It becomes a means of getting them sort of to do exactly what we want them to do when we want them to do it. And, And that's the very thing that God doesn't mean by the authority of his word. But rather, it's an authority that he vests in his word that now he entrusts to his people to actually speak and proclaim and minister and believe to bring about the purpose for which he sent it, which will be something we talk about in future weeks. When we say just the authority of Scripture, we also mean authority over judgment and redemption. Isaiah 6.10, those are really hard statements where it's going to tell Isaiah to go out You will go out and speak the word. And the reason is to make the hearts of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. So the reason God's going to send his word through Isaiah is to make their hearts more hard. And this goes back to the point we just said. How many of us go proclaim the word with that expectation? That what this will actually do is make people more angry with God. Or what it will actually do and accomplish is store up judgment. But certainly we see that with that, that was with Isaiah, that God's going, okay, who will I send? Isaiah's like, send me, send me. And he's like, okay, I will. And here's what it's going to do. It's going to actually render the hearts of these people more hard. Do you think that's what Isaiah expected to hear next? Yeah. And so we see there the word of God actually has a certain, a certain authority over sort of storing up judgment and bringing judgment. But then, praise God, on the other side, also in Isaiah, it's going to say, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, that God is also actually through his, his remnant people, he's going to bring salvation to people through his word. And so his word's going to have authority both to judge, but also authority to save. It's interesting, in the same prophet, you're going to see both. The same word's going to go out. For some, it's going to harden. For others, it's going to redeem. And that the word of God is going to be sort of the, the authority over that. Which is why when somebody asks, okay, how can I be saved? How can a person be saved? What should we do next? What should we say to them? should tell them how and where are we going to get how from scripture yeah where the scripture says okay here's here's what the bible says here's how you can be reconciled to god here's 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 the good news that he publishes that he preaches that when believed you can be saved that we're we're not just going to come up with our own ideas and again there's thousands of religions everywhere in the world that have ideas about how people can be saved but yet this word for us is the authority over that. Like this word, this is how we can approach God. This is how someone can be saved, is the way that God declares it. But also over sanctification and spiritual growth, that the scripture, even God, vests authority in his word over bringing about spiritual growth. This is 1 Thessalonians 2, where Paul says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. And then he says, which is at work in you believers? 
Just that phrase, the Word of God, which is at work in you, believers. That Paul's speaking about, okay, the Word of God's getting in you because of the Spirit who's also in you. It's actually changing you. It's growing you. Peter's going to say, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So you see just in you know, the Word itself is promised when this Word is taken in and eaten, I mean, God's going to use it by the Spirit to actually change us, to grow us. But then also it means it's an authority over, over worship, where God says, okay, this is how you're to worship me. This is how you're to approach me. This is what it means to offer yourself up as a right sacrifice. John's going to say to, or Jesus is going to say to the woman at the well, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. That's who the Father's after. Those who will worship him in spirit, meaning not attached to a building or a place or a mountain, but from the heart. From, from their regenerated being. But then also in truth, meaning not according to just customs and traditions and ideas of people, but the way God has so written and proclaimed, this is how you're to worship me. That's who the Father is, is after. Any questions about that? Just authority or comments about what the meaning of the Bible's authority With all that said, we'll sort of close with just a couple thoughts on humble care with the Bible's authority. We've already said this a little, that as only sinful humans can, we have a way of taking sort of this precious, wonderful, marvelous gift of God called the Word of God and potentially turning it into something pretty ugly if we're not actually under the sway of the Holy Spirit, if we're not actually sort of handling it with care. So that's the first thought here, is to handle it with care. This is Galatians 3.16. Now the promises, Paul says, were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Lloyd-Jones said this about this passage, the apostle there attaches significance just to one single letter. (laughs) You notice that? Just what he means there? That just one letter, Paul's going to say, this matters. He didn't say to seeds. He said to seed, who is Christ. And the idea, the reason we're referring to that is, wow, how careful do we have to be with the Word of God? Just one letter matters to how we understand a single verse, which affects how we understand that paragraph, which affects how we understand that chapter in that book, which leads to, okay, how we understand God and His works and His ways and what we actually teach people and how we actually live. And so you get this sense that we really are meant to, okay, handle it with care. We to okay, if this is the Word of God, then, then, it, then I should just exercise all due diligence to know it rightly and humbly. Yes. Yes, Katie. Margaret, just a comment. Just that, you know, the sword of the Spirit is always on. If we don't handle it with care, we'll wound people. Yeah, that's a great picture. Yeah, we'll injure ourselves. Mm-hmm. We'll injure other people. Yeah, if we walk into the kitchen and our kids are actually having a knife fight just in fun, <laughs> um, yeah, we'll, we'll probably intervene and say that's not what those are for. Uh, and you're not ready f- to handle it that way. But no, it's a great image of just saying, okay, the sword of the Spirit. And, and even um, in Proverbs, there's somewhere that talks about just our words that can either wound or heal. I can't remember the exact verse, beyond it, but, but just that our words can go out and they can either wound people, they can heal. And even the Word of God, yeah, that when we speak it and apply it and minister it to one another, that it can be for wounding, maybe good wounding, or it can be for bad wounding, or it can be for healing. Um, but then secondly, receive with trembling, you know, that we, we looked at last time in Zechariah where God said, you know, to this one I will look, to the one who hears my word and trembles at it. 
who sort of trembles at my word, who knows what they're receiving. This is, you know, in, in, in Numbers 12, when they had come out of Egypt after the crossing of the Red Sea, there's a day that came when Miriam and Aaron are going to come and oppose Moses. And Miriam's going to put them up to it. And they're going to come and they're going to say, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? They're going to sort of challenge the inspiration and authority, I think, of God's word through Moses and sort of make a, a dual claim. Hey, aren't we there too? And it says, and the Lord heard it. <laughs> it's always true. The Lord always hears it. And then he descends in a pillar of cloud, and here's his response in Numbers 12. And he said, hear my words. So how's he going to start? <laughs> hear my words. This is God speaking. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. What does he call him? Servant. This is my servant. Um, so I'm going to say this is my king, ruler, in charge of everybody, but not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? What a question. Imagine hearing that from God. That, yeah, with him I speak face to face, mouth to mouth. Why then were you not afraid to say this? You know? And she's going to be leprous. And, you know, but then she's going to be healed and have to be outside the camp. So how much more for us, okay, when, when we hear the word, that we receive it with trembling and humility, and that we would be afraid, not, not so much to ask questions about it or to be curious about it or to wonder about it or to want to learn about it. Or, that's all fine. Because Miriam and Aaron aren't asking, Lord, why'd you set it up this way? We're confused. They're not saying that, right? What are they saying? Here's how it's going to be set up. Here's how we're going to do it. We, yeah, why are we going to say only Moses this or this? I say this. So it's, it's much more rebellious, rash, you know, and so that's why God's going to say, why were you not afraid to speak against, you know, Moses and by definition, and therefore me and what I've decided. And therefore, finally, for the sake of loving God and others, which brings us to the, one of the points we made in the introduction chapter, that the aim of our teaching, the aim of our counseling, the aim of our comforting the aim of our ministry of the word with one another, the aim of our exhortation is greater love for God and others. That ultimately the purpose for which God sends his word is his glory, his name, his exaltation, the salvation of his people, that people would love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, that they would love one another. That's why Jesus is going to say all the law and the prophets are summed up in what? Love God. Love your neighbor. All the law and the prophets says everything I've written to you in the law and the prophets can be summed up in that. Therefore, the question we have to ask, okay, in this preaching of the word, in this teaching of the word, as I minister the word, as I'm applying the word, is it in the service of the love of God and the love of others? Paul said to Timothy, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. It's like, really, the, the aim of our teaching, the goal, is love. That's what we're after. So when we think about the inspiration of the word and the authority of the word, sort of all that sort of terminates on, on that sort of prayer and desire that, that God would be loved and that people would love one another, that we would love God, that we would love one another. All right? Ben, will you pray for it? Yes, Scott, go ahead. Just one last comment, maybe. Um, talking about how, because God inspired the word, the word has authority. Uh, Hebrews 12, 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Mm. They did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth. Much less will we escape if we reject him who warned from heaven. Yeah. So there's no kind of, oh, you can reject God's word, but you still accept and love God. Yeah. That they really do come together. That's good. Amen.
Ben, will you pray? And Heavenly Father, we do want to praise you for giving us your word. Father, thank you for inspiring it. That it was you've given us your word. It was uh, uh, given us uh, through through uh, the, the work of, of human authors and carried along by your Holy Spirit. And Father, we thank you that your word has authority. That it is true. Uh, so, Father, we thank you for uh, all the all, all the implications that that has for our life. And so, Father, we pray that as we do our devotions. Father, as we're about to hear your word <coughs> preached, and, um, Lord, we do pray that you would be with uh, Gary, especially as, it, as you handle uh, your, your scripture with, 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 with care, and Lord, yeah. that we would be a people who receives it with, with trembling, uh, and that we would, we would love hearing uh, your word preached. And we pray all these things to, that you do them for, uh, for your glory, and for your son's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.